So the last minute again, it's great to be here with you. Uh, we might do it out the microphone. I hope you can, can you hear me down the back, all right? Good. Excellent. Uh, if you've got the handout that's come around, you'll find that helpful. Uh, what ESC has really did come alive again? That's our question this afternoon. I noticed on the EU handout here and the description at the back, uh, whoever wrote this up uh, has chosen to draw attention to the fact that I'm bald. Anyone with this little hair must be smart. I'm not sure that's true actually, but the fact that I'm bald is certainly one of the things that you can't help noticing about me. I hang out a lot with little kids. I have three little kids of my own and I hang out with their friends and their families a lot of the time. And one of the things that little kids regularly say to me is, Murray, what happened to your hair? And now with some friends who've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old, uh, we were away on holidays with them and we were out swimming one day. I was just wearing my board shorts, which is not a pretty sight, but that's what it was. And the two-year-old, as if he hadn't noticed before, says to me, Murray, the same old question, what happened to your hair? And the four-year-old, quickly the flash, gets back to his younger brother with the answer. Can't you see, silly? It all fell down off, and off his head and onto his chest. <laughs> that one really helps with the self-esteem. <laughs> when I look at myself in the mirror and I see my bald head, it always makes me think about my grandpa. He had exactly the same head cut that I do, like his dad before him and his dad before him, like my dad and all my dad's brothers, like all of my brothers, and like I assume my sons. It's a strong genetic trait. When I think about my granddad, I think about all the stories that my dad, his, uh, his son, used to tell me about him. Uh, my granddad was a strong man, he was a builder, and my dad takes great pleasure, still does, in taking us around all the houses that granddad built, the factories that granddad built, the churches that granddad built, the shops that granddad built. He raised eight kids. He lived through the Depression. He was a strong man, a generous man. Uh, imagine raising eight, those eight kids, changing eight sets of nappies teaching eight sets of kids how to ride a bike, uh, sorting out fights between eight sets of kids. That was my granddad, my bald granddad. Those are the stories I get told about him. But whenever I think about my granddad and I look at my bald head in the mirror, I don't remember any of those things because I wasn't there to see them. What I was there to see was my granddad when he was old and decrepit, suffering dementia in a nursing home, unable to recognise his wife of 50 years. I remember seeing my granddad on the day he died and those are the images that stick in my mind. The images of him being he who was strong, who built all these houses and factories and shops, being so weak that he couldn't even lift up a spoon to feed himself. He who changed the nappies of eight kids, being so decrepit that he couldn't even take himself to the toilet. And I look at that and I remember that and I think that's not right. That's not the way it's meant to be. And yet, that's where I'm headed, I say to myself as I look at myself in the mirror. That's where we're all headed. Because we live in a world that is scarred by death and sickness and suffering and disease and violence and all of this stuff. And one response to all of that is to say, well, that's just the way it is. That's, that's what the world is like. So get over it. Get on with life, enjoy what you can, and make the most of it. But the Christian faith has always had a very different response to those realities, and to my mind, a much better response to those realities. The Christian faith, which is centred on the resurrection of Jesus, has always said, 
That's not the way it's meant to be in this world. Because this world is a world that God made and he made it good. What's more, it's not the way the things are going to be in this world. Because even though the world has been stuffed up like that through human rejection of God, through human sin, the Bible tells us, even though the world has come into this state, God entered the world in Jesus and took on himself the consequences of our rebellion against him. That's what Jesus' death on the cross was about. And God raised him from the dead three days later. And so the world is not always going to be this way because God has begun by raising Jesus from the dead to make the world new, to set things right, to sort it out. And you would have noticed that right in the heart of that story, that biblical story that I've just told you, is this claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Plenty of people in uh, our culture today just dismiss that claim without even thinking about it. We all know, don't we, that dead people don't rise. Dead people stay dead. It's one of the realities of life that is non-negotiable. And yet right at the heart of the Christian claim is that this one man, at one particular point in history, didn't stay dead but rose from the dead. And so the question we're exploring this afternoon is, what if that claim is actually true? What if Jesus actually did come alive again? What would that mean for how we think about him, how we think about ourselves, how we think about God, and how we think about the world in which we live? That's, that's where we're headed this afternoon. I've got two main uh, points that I want to take you through, and you'll see these on the handout. The first one is I want to take you through some historical considerations about Jesus' resurrection. And then I'll explore more briefly, just at the end, what Jesus' resurrection means for us today. Before we jump into it, though, we need to be clear about what the early Christians uh, who wrote the New Testament, where this claim about Jesus' resurrection is made, what they meant when they said that Jesus rose from the dead. I'll tell you what they didn't mean. They didn't mean that something had happened to them. They didn't mean that Jesus had died and was really still dead, but that Jesus lived on in their imagination, in their memory, that he was still present somehow to them and therefore significant to them. They didn't mean what some people mean, I take it when they say that Elvis lives, right? Not many people still say that today, but when people say that, I take it they mean Elvis is really dead, we know that, but his influence lives on. He lives on in our memories, we love his music. The early Christians didn't mean that. They also didn't mean that something had happened to Jesus that was merely spiritual, if I can put it like that. They didn't mean that Jesus was really dead and his body was rotting in the grave, but that in some sense his spirit, his soul, had gone to be with God and that he lives on in that sense. No, that's not what resurrection meant in the ancient world and that's not what the early Christians meant when they used the word resurrection. What they meant was that a real historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived and died in a physical body, had been raised from the dead in that body. We read it in the story in Luke's Gospel, that when the women went to the tomb, this is one of the stories that the early Christians told about it, that when the women went to the tomb, the tomb was empty because his body was missing. And then he appeared to them. And did you notice when he appeared to them? He shows them his hands and his feet, uh, showing them the scars of his crucifixion. And he eats a piece of boiled fish in their presence, showing them that he's not a ghost. He's not some walking spiritual, uh, immaterial thing. No, he's been raised in a body with the same body in which he died. You can still see the scars in his hands 
and sleep. It's the same Jesus, the tomb is empty, he's been raised from the dead. That's the early Christian claim. That's what they meant when they said Jesus has been raised. And I hope you can see that's a historical claim. It's something that happened at a particular time and in a particular place. We can date it. It's probably the 16th of Nisan, the Jewish month, AD 33. If you'd been there with a video camera, you could have taken some shots and put it up on YouTube. It was that kind of real historical event. So the claim goes. What if the claim is real? Let's first look at some of these historical considerations. The place to start here uh, may seem strange, but it's with the recognition that the phenomenon of the early church needs to be explained. Uh, by all accounts, uh, early Christianity started as a very small movement in Roman Palestine, in the region known as Galilee, and that at the time of Jesus' death, he had at most 11, uh, perhaps, a few, yeah, perhaps a few more, the women included, but a, a very small number of followers. Rodney Stark, a uh, sociologist of religion from Baylor University, has estimated that by the year AD 200, 250, within 200 years, Christianity had grown to become a mass movement involving at least a million people. That is a remarkable historical phenomenon. And we've got to explain it. How did that happen? Why did that happen? That's just a simple question of history. It's not that the phenomenon is unparalleled. The rise of Islam in the 7th century was similar in terms of its scope and rate. What makes the rise of Christianity so remarkable, however, is that the founder of the Christian movement, Jesus of Nazareth, was executed as a criminal. Jesus wasn't the only person uh, executed in that way in the first century. There were many Jews who, like Jesus, had messianic claims made about them, had claims made for them, or they made the claims themselves, that they were the Messiah, a Jewish term for the king, God's appointed ruler of his people, and indeed God's appointed ruler of the whole world. There were plenty, would, plenty of would-be messiahs in the first century. We know about some of them from a Jewish historian named Josephus, who tells us about Simon, uh, who rose up in rebellion at the time when Herod the Great uh, died in 4 BC, rose up in rebellion against the Romans and put a diadem on his head, a sure sign that he was claiming to be a king, claiming to be the Messiah, who was brutally put to death by the Romans. We read also in Josephus about Anthrondes at the same time in 4 BC, who raised up uh, a large movement in Judea who attacked Herodian and Roman strongholds, who claimed to be a king, who put a diadem on his head, who was claiming to be a messiah and who was also brutally put to death by the Romans. We read about Judas the Galilean at the same time who raised the rebellion with similar results. At the other end of the chronological spectrum, about 100 years after Jesus, in the year 132 to 135 AD, we read about a guy called Simon ben Tosheba, better known as bar I'll give you one of his coins there who claimed to be the Messiah, God's King, the ruler of the Jews, who managed for three years to establish an independent kingdom under the Romans, who minted coins like this one, which make his claim that he is the king. He's got the star on there, which is a reference to a, a prophecy from the Hebrew Scriptures that a star will rise, that there will be a Messiah. And here's Ben Kosova in 132 to 135 AD, claiming to be the Messiah, succeeding for three years, and then being executed by the Romans. 
And my guess is, unless you're a real ancient history nut like me, you haven't heard of any of those would-be messiahs from the first century. And yet you have heard of Jesus. And the reason is because the messianic movements around all of those would-be messiahs from the first century didn't survive the death of their founders. Why is that? Because you can't have a dead messiah. The whole point of being the messiah is that God has set your part to be the king and if you're dead, you're no good anymore. And so these messianic movements died with their founders. All of them. Except early Christianity. Why did it continue? Why did it rise so dramatically in the years that followed? Well, if you ask the early Christians as you read their documents, they give you one very clear and very consistent and very simple answer. He's not dead. He came back to life again. We've seen him and we've touched him and he's still alive. That was the explanation they gave for why they continued to follow him even after his execution at the hands of the Romans. You see that claim being made uh, most clearly and most strongly in what are known as the four Gospels, four biographies of Jesus' life that we have in the Bible and the New Testament. And so we're going to spend now a few moments looking at those as evidence for Jesus' resurrection and then dig back a little bit further into even earlier historical documents that speak of Jesus' resurrection. The Gospels present four historically credible resurrection narratives. We read one of them from Luke's Gospel. There are similar accounts in Matthew and Mark and Luke. Each of these Gospels is set out and presents itself as, as I put it there, historical biography based on eyewitness testimony. Have a look at how Luke starts his Gospel. He says, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is Luke's patron, probably paying for the writing of this uh, biography of Jesus so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. If you've read any other ancient accounts uh, written by ancient historians, historians from the ancient world, that format is very familiar. We have introductory paragraphs in similar works by the Jewish historian Josephus and the Greek historian Polybius and others. This is how you start a, a piece of writing which you intend to be history. You tell people about your sources, like Luke does here. Other people have written these events down and I've gotten a hold of their sources and I've put them together and I've set down an orderly account for you. I've investigated everything carefully. Josephus says the same about his history. Polybius says the same about his history. I've interviewed the eyewitnesses. I've gathered my information and now I'm presenting this for you so that you can know the truth about what you've been instructed. Whether we believe the accounts in the Gospels or not, it's very clear what they think they're doing. They don't think they're writing a fairy tale. They don't think they're writing fiction. They think they're writing history. The Gospels present themselves as historical biography based on eyewitness testimony. Uh, Something else that makes the accounts of the resurrection in uh, the Gospels credible, historically credible, is that there is substantial agreement between them. If you read the accounts in parallel of Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, what you see is that they very clearly tell the same story. Let me give you a run of some of the events. All of them report that Jesus was 
uh, tried before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem. All of them report that the Sanhedrin handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea at that time. All of them report that uh, Jesus, that a man named Barabbas, a terrorist named Barabbas, who had uh, led an insurrection against the Romans, uh, was uh, set free, pardoned in place of Jesus. All of them record that it was Pontius Pilate who ordered Jesus' execution, that Jesus was crucified outside Jerusalem, that Jesus was crucified at the time of the Jewish Passover, that there were women who witnessed Jesus' execution, that a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a leading member of the Jewish council, had Jesus buried in a tomb that he had cut out in a rock. All of them report that the women went to uh, examine the tomb on the third day to anoint Jesus' body with the spices, as is a Jewish custom, and that when they got there, the tomb was empty. That's the same story, right? There is substantial agreement between the four Gospels at all of those points. And that should increase our uh, trust in their reliability as historical narratives. Here we have four different accounts telling us the same story. This next one may seem uh, to contradict that, but hold on for a minute and hopefully it will become clear. There's also reasonable disagreement between these four accounts in the four Gospels. Uh, let me point out some of these disagreements between the Gospels. In uh, each of them recording the women going to find the tomb being empty, they record a different number of women. Luke has five, Matthew has three. Sorry, Mark has three, Matthew has two, John has just one. Uh, in their reports about the messengers that meet the women at the tomb, Luke and John have two, Matthew and Mark record only one. They differ in what they, how they describe what happened to the stone and how it was rolled away. They record different appearances of Jesus to the disciples after his resurrection. There are differences between the different accounts, even though they're clearly telling the same story. On the surface of things, you might think that would undermine the reliability of these accounts as history. But actually, the opposite is true, because this is exactly what you expect when you have four different accounts from four different perspectives. The four of us go home this afternoon, uh, and give accounts of what happened in this room at lunchtime. You know, some of you may not even mention it to your housemates or your, your parents or whoever you live with because it just doesn't write a blip on your radar. Uh, I, I tell you, I'll probably talk to my wife about it in quite some detail, right? Our accounts will differ. Some of us will give lots of detail, some of us will give just a little bit of detail. Hopefully we'll all be telling the same story if we all tell the truth and yet our perspective on that will be different. And that's exactly what you expect any time that you come across eyewitness accounts of historical events. And that's exactly what we've got here in the Gospel. And so these surface inconsistencies, none of which are insurmountable, you can create one consistent narrative out of them. These surface inconsistencies actually point to the reliability of the Gospels as historical evidence. If they were all in agreement word for word, then we'd start to become suspicious, wouldn't we, that they got together and colluded that they agreed that this was going to be the story and let's tell it this way, that they were hiding something. The fact that they tell the same story from different perspectives, uh, perspectives argues strongly for their reliability. Uh, fourth, and perhaps even more convincingly to my mind, is the fact that these stories include a number of details that are embarrassing. The clearest of these is the fact that all of them report that it was women who went to the tomb. Before you call me a misogynist, let's understand the culture from the first century where the testimony of women would not stand up in court, particularly in a Jewish court. And so why do the Gospel writers all include the fact that it's women who go to the tomb and women who are the first witnesses 
and women who bring the report about the resurrection of Jesus. It's not the kind of things you're making up a report you would decide to include to increase its authenticity. In fact, it's the kind of thing you'd hide because it's embarrassing, because it decreases the authenticity, it decreases the perceived reliability of the account. And so the fact that it's there tells us that what is going on here is honest reporting. The reason it's there, the reason it hasn't been censored is because it happened. Finally, the four Gospels are remarkably restrained in the way that they tell the story of the resurrection. There's no description, if you read through the four of them, no description of Jesus actually coming out of the tomb. There's only descriptions of an empty tomb and of Jesus meeting people afterwards. Why would that be? Well, because there are no eyewitnesses there who saw him coming out of the tomb. The accounts are restrained. They have set themselves to what the eyewitnesses saw. You compare that with a much later account of the resurrection which comes to us in a book called The Gospel of Peter from late in the second century, which is almost certainly not written by the Apostle Peter. He was well dead by the time that this work was written. And it goes like this. In the night in which the Lord's day was drawing on as the soldiers kept guard, two by two in a watch, there was a great voice in the heaven and they saw the heaven opened and two men descended with a great light and approached the tomb and the stone that was put uh, at the door rolled of itself and made way in part, and the tomb was opened, and both the young men entered in. When therefore these soldiers saw it, they awakened the centurion and the elders, for they were too close by keeping, they too were close by keeping guard. And as they declared what things they had seen, again they saw three men come forth from the tomb, this is my favourite bit, two of them supporting one, and a cross following them, kind of floating in the air behind them, I guess, for them to understand. And the head of the two reached up to heaven, there's a big head. And the head of him who was led by them, that's Jesus, overpassed the heaven. I guess this is some attempt in the, by the writer of this thought to say that Jesus is so magnificent, he had such an enormous head. But <laughs> they heard a voice from the heaven saying, You have preached to them the sleep, and a response was heard from the cross. Yes, this is the cross speaking. The cross declares, Yes. You compare this sensational overly dramatised accounts from late in the second century with the accounts in the Gospels. And what you see, that what we have in the Gospels is very mundane, very matter-of-fact, very unsensational, very much like an eyewitness report of what happened. If we push back further behind the Gospels, what you realise is that the Gospels aren't in fact the earliest Christian sources which speak about the resurrection. Uh, there are some that are earlier still. The Gospels are all written somewhere between the 60s and the 90s AD. Jesus was executed probably in AD 33. So the earliest Gospel is written 30 to 40 years after Jesus was executed. The latest, uh, 50 to 60 years after he was executed. So they're all very close by ancient historical standards. But we've got sources that are even closer. Uh, I've jumped into number two here. We'll come back to number one. The reports about Jesus' resurrection are early. Uh, in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, which is written probably 49, perhaps 50 AD, so we're talking there within 20 years of Jesus' execution in AD 33, Paul says very simply, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That is probably the earliest record we have of Jesus being raised from the dead, of the, of the report about Jesus being raised from the dead. Only a couple of years later, also from uh, Paul, writing a letter to the Corinthians, 
in chapter 15, he gives us a more extended account. He says, I handed on to you, writing to the Corinthian uh, Christian believers, I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Kephas, that's another name for Peter, then to the twelve, that's the twelve disciples, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died, and then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. He is Paul's support of Jesus' death and of his resurrection and of the appearances, a whole list of them, to keep us into the twelve and the five hundred and to James and to me. All of these people, Paul says, saw Jesus alive again after his resurrection. And he's writing at a time when all of these people are still alive. That's why he makes the comment about the 500. Some of them have died. If you want to check this information out, you can ask any one of those 500. Of course, it's just a few that have died. You can't ask them. But the rest are there. Go and ask them. He's laying this claim to resurrection on the stopping block of history and saying, let's investigate it. The reports are early. The reports are also widespread. Uh, here's what we get to what uh, the scholars call multiple independent attestation. It sounds like some disease. It really just means that there's multiple sources which aren't copying from each other. They're independent. And they all attest, they all tell the same story about Jesus being raised from the dead. We've mentioned already the four Gospels, these two letters from Paul. There are 27 books in the New Testament. Nearly all of them either explicitly speak of or make a strong allusion to Jesus' resurrection. That's 27 documents all of them written within 60 to 70 years of Jesus' execution, all of them testifying to this early Christian claim that Jesus did not stay dead but rose from the dead. To put that in perspective, if we uh, look at the sources we've got for other ancient historical events around the same era, you think about uh, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars when he went up to France and conquered the French, the Gauls, we've got one account of those events from Caesar's own hand in his Gallic Wars. If you think about Alexander the Great, uh, and the sources that we've got for Alexander the Great, we've got basically two primary sources for Alexander the Great, a whole bunch of others that are much later, but two primary sources for Alexander the Great. And they are much later, they're uh, at least 150, 200 years after the events that they describe. And yet here for the Gospels, we've got sources, here for Jesus' resurrection, we've got sources that are early, and we've got heaps of them. What do we get from this? Well, it doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead, but what it does prove is that the early Christians from the very beginning, from as early as we have records, claimed that Jesus rose from the dead. As we keep exploring though, we realise that this claim continues to gain credibility because the reports are not easily explained from within ancient Greek, uh, Greco-Roman and Jewish worldviews. If there was an expectation in the ancient world that dead people rose from the dead in their bodies, and then people started saying, hey, that happened to Jesus. You go, yeah, sure. Everyone expected that kind of thing. But when you look at what we have in the ancient world, there is no expectation of resurrection like this. In the Greco-Roman sources, and I've given you a few of them there, Homer's Iliad, uh, one of these foundational texts that every uh, Greek and then eventually Roman schoolboy would read in school to learn his letters. Uh, you've got Achilles speaking to Priam regarding Hector, whom Achilles has, has killed, and he says, bear up, don't give way to grief. Nothing will come of sorrowing for your son, 
nor would you raise him up before you die. Why? Because the dead don't rise. Uh, in uh, Ischia Voss's Humanities, a, a, a famous Greek playwright, he said, once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. Plato believed in some kind of life continuing after bodily death, but it was a life purely for the soul. He said the soul is imprisoned in the body like an oyster in a shell, and when you die, your soul is released from your body. And so for a Greek mindset, the idea that somebody would rise from the dead was either ridiculous, because the dead don't rise, or ugly. Who wants a body back? Uh, according to Plato, a body is where you suffer, a body is where you die. In some across the Jewish worldview, there was some expectation that God would raise the dead. Uh, and I've given you the passage there from Daniel, one of the Old Testament books which speaks of this expectation that the dead will rise. But you'll notice there is an expectation that all the dead will rise together at the end. And that's not what the early Christians proclaimed about Jesus. They said one man rose ahead of the rest in the middle of history and that was unexpected. And the fact that it's unexpected led his credibility to the reality behind the claim. Finally, it's got to be mentioned that these reports about the resurrection from the early Christians were passionately defended. Uh, we have records of many of Jesus' disciples being persecuted precisely for their claim that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you know anything about early Christianity, you know the Christians were persecuted. Uh, James, son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' closest followers, was put to death by the sword by Herod Agrippa. James, Jesus' brother, was stoned to death in AD 62 by leading Jews in Jerusalem. Peter and Paul were executed under Nero in Rome, and the list goes on. All of these people died and went to their death claiming that they were convinced, claiming that they had seen these ones, Jesus, raised from the dead. And the question you've got to ask yourself is, who would die for a lie? If they knew that this claim was some kind of fabrication, if they knew that this claim was not grounded in historical reality, why would they so passionately defend it even to the point of death? There are all sorts of alternative explanations that people have come up with to make sense of this evidence down through the centuries. I'm not going to go into them now. All sorts of alternative explanations. But what we've got, what is non-negotiable, is that the founder of Christianity died, that despite that fact, and Christianity being a messianic movement, Christianity grew and flourished dramatically following the death of its founder, and that when you asked the early Christians why they continued to follow the dead Messiah, they said, it's because he's not dead. The most plausible explanation for that rise of Christianity and for that claim by the early Christians is that what they claimed was actually true. Of course, uh, coming from a modern Western worldview, that claim sounds ridiculous. We know, so we think, that the dead don't rise. If God is there, then he's distant and disengaged. And so we dismiss it out of court. And yet surely, with evidence like this, we should allow ourselves to re-examine our basic assumptions about whether God is there or not, and that if he is, whether he really is distant and engaged, or whether he actually has come and entered his world and made a difference, and in particular raised Jesus from the dead. What if it did happen? What would it mean? Two quick thoughts. 
It is a strange event. It's a kind of event that different people may put different interpretations on. So how did Jesus and the early Christians explain it? Well, Jesus himself explains his resurrection not as some neat party trick, not as some random miracle to prove his power, but as an achievement. Jesus said that by raising him from the dead, God had defeated death and established Jesus with, here he says, all authority in heaven and on earth. What does the resurrection mean? According to Jesus himself, his resurrection means that he has authority. All authority. It's a staggering claim. Authority over all people, everywhere. Authority through all time, in all places. Authority even over us. What does Jesus' resurrection mean today? Secondly, if you read through the explanation by the early Christians about the resurrection, they keep coming back to this one thing, that the resurrection is like a new beginning in an old, scarred, broken world. Paul puts it like this in that same letter to the Corinthians where he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. First fruits is an agricultural metaphor. He's saying Jesus is like the very first piece that you pick off the tree at the beginning of a peace harvest. And as you take it down off the tree and you bite into it and you enjoy the juice dripping down your chin, what you know is that there's a whole bunch of other pieces on the way. And that by the end of summer, by the end of the harvest, you're going to have pieces everywhere because the harvest is on the way. And Jesus' resurrection, he says, is like that. It's the first fruit. It's the resurrection of one man. The beginning of the resurrection of the rest and even of the resurrection of the whole cosmos at the end. What does the resurrection mean today? It means that God has not given up on his world, but has begun to do something about all the mess that we see around us, and especially about the problem of death, because he's taken one man and is raised him from the dead. There's heaps more to talk about. I'll be hanging around if you want to hang around and chat. I realise that some of those things that I've said uh, raise all sorts of major questions about our basic uh, uh, assumptions about life, our basic world view. And I want to encourage you, if you found any of that even slightly convincing, chat to the person who you came with today, or hang around and chat with me, but don't leave uh, shutting you to the door. Investigate these claims and see what implications they might have for your life. And I'll leave it there.